Today's teaching comes from Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27 through 47. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netothophites, also from Beth Gigal, and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up into the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hosea and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Ezreal, Maliah, Gilali, Mai, Natanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra, the scribe, went before them. And at the fountain gate, they went straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshena and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half the officials with me, and the priest Eliakim, Messiah, Meniam, Micaiah, Elioenai, Zechariah, Hanani, with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehoanan, Malchijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezriah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the firstfruits, and the tithes to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Brandon, thank you. That wasn't an easy reading. You did well. You ever had that experience where you experienced something and you thought, I don't ever want this to end? Maybe it's a, it's a beautiful sunset or... Maybe it's a, an amazing concert. Or maybe it's a delicious meal. Or maybe that memorable time, a really memorable time with extended family over a holiday. 
these experiences, or, or maybe a riveting football game where your team wins, right? These experiences that we have in this world that oftentimes we, we, we don't want them ever to end. You know, when you think about those joyful experiences, uh, there's two truths that typically characterize every one of those. Number one, generally speaking, that joy is derived from someone else's joy or someone else's achievement or someone else's accomplishment. And number two, those earthly joys are temporary, right? They come to an end and they leave us wanting. There is a joy that never ends. There is a joy that is eternal. And it's also a joy that is derived or that drafts off of someone else's joy. And that is the joy of heaven. It's the joy of the Godhead. It's the joy that we experience when we worship. We get a taste of it. And it's the joy that we see at the center of this passage in Nehemiah 12, verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The word joy and the word rejoice appears five times in that one verse. Now, it begs the question, why? Well, I'm going to give you the short answer, and then we're going to go through the long answer. The short answer as to why they were erupting with joy is in the middle of verse 43. It says, God had made them rejoice with great joy. This wasn't a joy that they conjured up. This wasn't a joy that they just picked themselves up by their bootstraps and, and exerted sheer willpower. No, this is a joy from God. This is a joy that was received. I said it several weeks ago. Joy cannot be manufactured. It can only be received. So God is the cause of joy. Now let me get to the long answer. The question becomes, through what or through what means did God cause them to rejoice? What fuels joyful worship? And the reason I say that reverberates is because what it says at the end of verse 43 is that their joy was heard throughout the land. Okay, it, it was not a tame Presbyterian worship service. It was loud. It was exuberant. Many different instruments, right? It was loud worship, and, you, and you, it begs the question, what fuels joyful worship? First, thanksgiving. Look at verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing. Now, how was this thanksgiving expressed? Verse 31. Then I, Nehemiah, appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went south on the wall. Verse 38, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. Verse 40, 
So both choirs of those who gave thanks. Now, here's what's interesting. That phrase, choir that gave thanks, is one word in the Hebrew. It's the word thanksgivings. So way to reread it, kind of more woodenly, would say this. Nehemiah appointed two great thanksgivings. One thanksgiving went south, one thanksgiving went north, and both thanksgivings met at the temple, the house of God. These choirs, these singers, embodied what they sang. It wasn't just that they were, they were singers that were singing mere words. They actually embodied what they were singing. It flowed from within. It resonated from deeply within, right? They embodied this thanksgiving. It's the difference between, and you've, you've seen this, it's the difference between somebody just singing a song and someone singing a song that is reverberating and resonating from deep within, that comes with much joy and much passion, right? They were thanksgivings. They embodied thanksgiving. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews 13, 15, where it talks about a sacrifice of praise. That's another way that actually it can be interpreted. They're thanksgivings or thanksgiving offerings. This was an offering, not just of their words, but their entire being, their bodies, their singing, right? all of it. Why were they thankful? Well, the wall was finished. The temple was completed. They were not in exile in Babylon anymore. And the glory of God was now at the center of their life and their being back in Jerusalem. They were erupting in worship. God had acted on and fulfilled his promises. But that's not always the case with Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, one of the traits of God's people throughout the Old Testament that's consistent is grumbling and complaining. When you read through the Old Testament, Israel is, is constantly grumbling and complaining, even as God provides. So think about when they were rescued out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. Do you know it was about three days after that miraculous Red Sea crossing, they had brought, been, been delivered out of awful slavery, and three days later, do you know what they were saying? Where's the food? We want to go back to Egypt. Right? It was never enough. Or think about after 40 years in the desert. God brings them into the promised land, a land flowing with goodness. And then not, not too long after that, in the period of the judges, they, they finally, they look around and they see these nations that have kings. And even though God was their king, they said, we want a king, right? It was never enough. That's what characterized God's people, right? It was never enough. And you and I don't have to try too hard to relate to that, right? Thanksgiving or gratitude is actually a discipline. If you don't try, if you don't give any intentional effort, you are guaranteed to complain, right? Complaint, grumbling, lack of gratitude, that just, that just flows out of the mouth. That's the, it's the, the native or the sinful default of the human heart is to complain, to grumble. It's never enough. And everyone here who has a heart that's beating understands that, right? Thanksgiving is a discipline. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Right? Give thanks is actually a command from God. What do we learn from this verse? Two important truths. Number one, it says, give thanks in all circumstances. 
not because of circumstances. Right? Circumstances are not the cause of thanksgiving. Circumstances are not the cause of thanksgiving. So what is? Here's the second truth. There's a phrase in that verse where there's the command to give thanks that if you lose that phrase, this will turn into sheer willpower of you trying to be grateful and trying to be thankful. And the phrase is, in Christ Jesus. It's give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Right? Your, your union with Christ, your relationship with Christ and what he has done for you is what fuels thanksgiving. The work of Christ, not your circumstances, is what fuels thanksgiving. So the work he has done by dying on the cross, the work he is doing by interceding for you on your behalf before the Father, and the work he will do in returning to take you home, that is what produces thanksgiving. That's what produces thanksgiving. Several years ago, we bought a used pop-up camper to travel wherever we wanted to travel. And uh, we bought this pop-up camper. And right afterwards, I, I called my brother because he had gotten one several years earlier. And I called him to say, hey, give me some tips. What do I need to know about my pop-up camper? Give us, how do you use it? What's the, you know? And he, and he told me the story of when they got theirs. And the first time they took it, they hitched it onto their SUV and headed up to the mountains. And they got on the highway, and when they got up to 60 to 70 miles an hour, the pop-up camper, the trailer, started to sway violently back and forth. It's called trailer sway. Back and forth so violently that my brother's SUV was swerving violently back and forth in the lane. And he said his kids were in the back seat, scared to death. His wife was in the passenger seat, head down, almost crying, and he was frightened to death white-knuckling the steering wheel. Now, they didn't stay on the highway long, obviously. So what did he do to fix it? He purchased what's called a, a stabilizer bar. It's a sway bar. And it attaches to the tow vehicle, and it attaches to the trailer. How does it work? The stabilizer bar keeps the trailer from exerting force on the tow vehicle. So as soon as they put this stabilizer bar on the, his hookup, the trailer no longer jerked the vehicle around. The trailer is like your circumstances. You're hitched to them. Whether you like it or not, you're hitched up to your circumstances. The stabilizer bar is like Christ that keeps your circumstances from jerking your life around so that you can actually give thanks even in the most awful circumstances. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ absorbs the force of your circumstances so that the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is the controlling narrative of your life, not your circumstances. And when that's true, then you're giving thanks is fueled by and flows out of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, not your circumstances. So when Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances, not because of, but in all, that's just the context. He says it's the will of God in Christ Jesus, united to Christ, you give thanks for the work of Christ. And when that happens, your joy explodes. 
When that happens, you, you will erupt in joyful thanks no matter what's going on, on around, outside of you because of the work of Christ and how amazing it is. So what fuels joyful worship? First, it's thanksgiving. Second, God's presence. Starting in verse 31, you see that Nehemiah appoints these two choirs and they start to, basically, it's a, it's a parade. It's a processional along the top of the, of the wall, one south, one north, and they, they, they go around, and these two choirs meet at the house of God or at the temple, right? At the temple. Now, three important observations of this description of what happens. Number one is that they were led. Someone was leading them on this journey to the temple, which was the center of God's dwelling, his presence, right? And we learned that at least the group that went south was led by Ezra, who was a priest, a scribe. So number one, they were led. Number two, the end of the processional was the temple. It started on the wall and it ended at the temple. It didn't start in the temple and end at the wall. Third observation, their arrival in the temple preceded this eruption of joy that we see in verse 43. Now, what's the significance of each of these observations? Number one, what's the significance of Ezra leading the people to the temple? Well, look at verse 30. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. The people could not enter the temple apart from being purified, right? Sinful man cannot enter the presence of a holy God. There has to be purification. And the key here is that they couldn't purify themselves. They had to be led and they had to be purified by the priests, led by Ezra, purified by the priests. This is a beautiful picture, what we see here, of what Ezra does in leading the people Right? and then being purified, a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ does for us. Jesus Christ purifies us and makes us fit for the presence of the Father. He purifies us, he makes us fit for the presence of the Father and leads us into the presence of the Father. That's his role. Joni Erickson Tata, she was paralyzed in a, in a diving accident as a teenager. And she writes this about uh, illustrating the work of Christ on her wedding day. Listen to this. I felt awkward as my girlfriends strained to shift my paralyzed body into a cumbersome wedding gown. No amount of corseting and building or binding my body kept me a perfect shape. The dress just didn't fit well. Then I was wheeling into, church, into the church. I glanced down and noticed that I had accidentally run over the hem of my dress, leaving a greasy tire mark. My paralyzed hands couldn't hold the bouquet of daisies that lay off center on my lap. And my chair, though decorated for the wedding, was still a big, clunky, gray machine with belts, gears, and ball bearings. I certainly didn't feel like the picture-perfect bride in a bridal magazine. I inched my chair closer to the last pew to catch a glimpse of Ken in front. There he was, standing tall and stately in his formal attire. I saw him looking for me, craning his neck 
to look up the aisle, my face flushed, and I suddenly couldn't wait to be with him. I had seen my beloved. The love in Ken's face had washed away all my feelings of unworthiness. I was his pure and perfect bride. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, our bridegroom, who purifies the bride, who purifies us, takes away our dirt and our shame and our guilt, takes it upon himself on the cross and then gives us his perfect righteousness so that we are beautiful and perfect in his sight so that we can be presented to the Father. Jesus purifies his bride. And that's what he did on the cross. That's what he's doing now through sanctification in preparation for the wedding day. Second, what's the significance of the, the processional ending in the temple? Right? Starts on the wall, ends in the temple, where God's presence is, where they worship. Why does it end at worship? Because worship is the end. Worship is the end. And everything else is a means towards that. Think about missions. Why do missions exist? Because worship does not. Missions exist because worship doesn't. The goal of missions is to what? Cultivate worshipers. The goal of parenting is to raise up and train worshipers. That's the end. And we've been reading through, we just finished First and Second Chronicles in our community Bible reading. And one of the themes that when you read through both of those books is that the kings of Israel and Judah the constant theme is that they were always engaged in this dual worship. They didn't reject God, but they also didn't remove the high places of worship, the pagan worship, the idols, right? So, you, so this picture is of these kings that they didn't reject God. They were worshiping idols. It was this dual worship. It's what Jesus speaks about in Matthew 6, 24, when he says no one can serve or worship two masters. You can't serve or worship God in money. You can only worship one in reality. You only do worship either the true and living God or some false God. Now, this leads us into the third observation. The, the significance of the third observation of what we see here in this processional to the temple is that they arrive at the temple and that precedes this great explosion of joy. Now, what's significant there? When we talk about worship, there's, there's really only two things we worship or two people we worship. You either worship self or you worship God. Now you say, that's pretty simplistic. What about when I worship money? Well, why do you worship money? For something it can get for you, whether it's pleasure or status. We, we're either worshiping self or worshiping God. The trajectory of worshiping self is always, long-term, is always misery and death. That's why Jesus says, if, 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 if you save yourself, you lose yourself. If you lose yourself, you save yourself. Why? Because the trajectory of worshiping God is always joy, pure joy. That is where joy comes from because we're made by him and created by him to be outwardly focused, to be, to be moving outward. And so when you worship God, joy erupts because you're, you're united to a, a joyful God. The joy of the Godhead, the joy of the Trinity, the joy of heaven. That's why when you worship, you get a taste of it. 
True joy is the result of worshiping God. True joy erupts in the presence of God, which is what Jesus makes us fit for. I remember early on with our kids, when they were infants, still in a crib, you know, there'd be times where Kim and I would walk in the room, you know, and one of them just, just laying in the crib, and you walk in, and their face just lights up. Big smile, arms moving, legs kicking, right? So, so happy to see mommy and daddy. Just sheer eruption of joy in the presence of mommy and daddy. That's what the human heart does in the presence of God. It comes to life. It erupts with joy in the presence of its maker. And Jesus prepares us for that. He prepares us for the presence of the Father. When Jesus died, it said the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil was torn. If you are in Christ, you have unimpeded access to God the Father because of the work of Jesus Christ to purify you and make you fit for God's presence. And that's why corporate worship is so important. That's why private worship is so important because that is the end and that's where joy erupts. So what fuels joyful worship? First, Thanksgiving. Second, God's presence. And finally, communal connection with the past. One of the striking features of this passage is this over and over mention of King David. Now understand at this point, King David's been long dead. Why? Well, it culminates in verses 45 to 46. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So there's this sense that the, the post-exilic community, all these exiles that have returned from Babylon and are now back in Jerusalem, have this longing to connect with the pre-exilic people. In other words, the, the people that were existing and living God's people before the exile. 2 Samuel chapter 6 says that King David, and this is when the kingdom was intact before the exile, King David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. It says, with great joy, leaping and dancing before the Lord. That's what David did. And now you have this community of God's people, many, many, many years later, returning to Jerusalem and trying to connect with that joy, with David's joy when he brought the ark into the temple and, and was leaping and dancing with joy. There's this longing to connect. Matthew Levering says it well. Listen to this. What is the joy of Jerusalem? The precious threads between the present people and the present city with the pre-exilic people and the pre-exilic city remain intact. The stones of broken Jerusalem left for dead are restored once again to their proper places. I've said already, joy is received and not manufactured. That joy uh, erupts in the presence of God. But third, joy is communal. It's not merely individual. And it's not just present communal, it's past communal. I'll give you an example of this. When we sing hymns that were written centuries ago, 
We're connecting with God's people centuries earlier and the joy that we see expressed in the hymns that they wrote in their time. One example, It Is Well With My Soul. It's a great hymn written by Horatio Spafford in 1873. He was a a successful businessman and lawyer in Chicago. He had a wife and five children. In 1871, his youngest child died of pneumonia. Later that year, he lost almost his entire business in the Great Chicago Fire. Two years later, he was planning on taking his family to Europe. And he got caught up in business. He had to stay back a couple of days, but he sent his wife and four children over on a ship. The ship collided with another ship. It sank. All four children died, and she survived. And she wired him a message that said, saved alone, what do I do now? So Horatio Spafford immediately boarded a ship and headed over to Europe to be with her. And when he was crossing over that area where the ship went down that lost his four children, he wrote, it is well with my soul. Listen to it this afternoon. When we sing that song, we're connected with him as the hymn writer. We're connected with his joy in the midst of deep sadness. And and it gives us joy in the midst of our own sadness and our own suffering. There's this deep desire to be connected with the past. That's why Ancestry.com is so successful. It's why you long to go to your high school reunion. No, well, maybe most of you. (laughs) That's, that's, That's a half illustration there. Some of you are like, no chance. I'm not going back. But a number of you do. You want to connect. It's the reason why the emerging church in the 1990s and the 2000s didn't last long. You know, the emerging church was was this church that sprouted up that said, the the failures of the church in the past, we're done with it. We're gonna disconnect with the church from the past and we're gonna start fresh and start new and be divorced from the past. It didn't last long. Why? Because the joyful worship of the church is fueled by a connection with the past church, the historical church in centuries earlier. That that's where our joy is fueled. Now, I began by giving you the short answer to the question, what fuels joyful worship? The short answer, verse 43, is that God made them rejoice. God makes you rejoice. And then I gave you a long answer, right? Thanksgiving for what Christ has done for you, God's presence, communal connection with the past? Well, that can even be reduced to a short answer. You know what the short answer is? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Thanksgiving for what God has done for you in Christ to bring you into God's uh, presence and to connect you with a community of misfits that have received this unending joy. If you've ever played the guitar or watched the guitar played, you know that if you, if you just tap on a guitar string, that it will reverberate a little bit. You'll get a little noise out of it. But if you pluck a guitar string, it reverberates a lot deeper and a lot longer with a lot more volume. 
There are experiences in this life, in this world, that can tap the bass string of your heart. See, that the human heart has a bass string to it. And there are experiences in this world that, that, can, that can tap it. But the gospel story, what God has done for you in Christ to bring you into his presence and connect you with a group of misfits, a community of misfits that are receiving this unending joy is the only story that can pluck the bass string of your heart and cause it to reverberate endlessly with tremendous joy. Question is, is that gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, reverberating in your heart? And for some of you that are investigating Christianity and you've, you've never trusted Christ, you've never surrendered to him, when you trust Christ, when you surrender to Christ, your circumstances don't go away. You're still hitched up to them. But you experience the joy of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your heart will erupt with joy in the midst of your circumstances. Because that's what the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, does to the human heart. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are an ungrateful people. That as we read of, of the story of your people in the Old Testament and we see the grumbling and the complaining, it was never enough. We don't have to work to try to figure out how they did that. That that is our, our, our natural default in sin, to complain and grumble and for it never to be enough. And, and it steals our joy there's a number of us this morning, this morning that understand the lack of joy. We're in the midst of it. Father, maybe it's because we have been looking to our circumstances to bring us joy. And by your Holy Spirit, Father, would you root our hearts deeply in the work of your Son? Would you attach our hearts deeply to the work of your Son on our behalf, that our joy would explode that our joy would erupt. Father, as we close now in worship, we sing these songs as a sacrifice of praise, as a thanksgiving offering, and as a longing for what we hope for and what's promised in your return, Jesus. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.